When wishes don't come true, do wishing wells issue refunds? Am I wasting my life watching Columbo reruns? Absolutely not. Time well spent. This is Answer Me This, episode 399, which means the next episode is episode 400. That's how maths works. Yeah, it's how sequential numbering, such as we subscribe to that system, works. That's right, the one before it was 398, the one before that was 397. I could go on. You're going to go all the way back to one... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's the episode. Bye. <laughs> of course, you have to pay to hear and count backwards from 200 to 1. All of which may lead some of you to be wondering, what are we going to do for our 400th episode? It's a natural question at this juncture. Well, I feel a lot of um, emotions to say that episode 400 will be the final episode of Answer Me This. There you are. You've said it now, Helen. How do you feel? I feel really strange. I feel really, you know, I, I am going to miss our listeners a lot. And researching these questions they've dug out of their incredible minds and uh, learning stuff. We're aware that for some of you, we're just a podcast that you occasionally dip into. Yeah, just some noises. And then for others of you, this will be like you've been listening for 15 years and we have been constant companions in your ears. The fact that you care about this show is what has made this show historically work. Uh, It's your questions and your sharing of the show that has kept us going so long, frankly. And the, the last Zaltzman family dog, Juniper, lived for pretty much the time span of this podcast. And she was a, a breed that is not expected to live a long life. So when she got beyond about 11, we were like, oh, wow. And she died at 14 and two thirds. And it was still lovely to have her around, but it was also like borrowed time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want the podcast to, you know, wheeze and shit itself to death. Even though in some ways that would be an appropriate way for us to go out, given all of the excremental questions we've received over the years. But it is also, we've been doing this since 2007. How many of you have been doing the same job since 2007? That's it. We were In, in some ways we were different people. And it's been fun sort of charting that in the last few years as well, how we've changed. Yeah, and humiliating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there comes a point where, if not episode 400, then when? Would we have carried on to episode 500, bearing in mind we're only making 12 a year now? Probably not. 400 seems like a nice time to stop. Bear in mind we're going to kill it at the end of 2016. So it's had four and two thirds years longer than uh, originally planned. And I think good ones. But to contextualise this, 2007 is when the TV show Gossip Girl started. And that show is just about to relaunch with a whole new generation. <laughs> That's how long Answer Me This has been carrying on with the same generation. Yes, although if you're thinking, all oh, right, time for a reboot. No, we don't want the show to carry on with other people. And no, although it would be lovely for you to send us some money, you starting up a crowdfunding campaign now will make no difference to this decision. It isn't financial. Um, well, let's see how much money. Sure. I mean, if we get to 10 million, then we could we could consider. Also, the archives will stay up, available, and none of you take the name and do your own podcast, all right? Fuck off. Yeah. We've got prior use claim on that. So, episode 400 on the 5th of August will be our last episode, uh, or at least until the reunion special with James Corden in 17 years' time. No! Um, <laughs> so... What we want from you for next episode is, as ever, questions. Yes. If you have an urgent question that we haven't answered for the last 15 years and you need answered before the show ends forever, send it now. Otherwise, you have missed your chance. We would also like you to record yourself just telling us your answer me this memories. When we answered your question, did it make your life better or worse? Yeah. Did we say something on the show 
even if it wasn't in answer to one of your questions that has influenced your life in any way. I know people have been listening for so long they may have made choices about their career or their university or their <laughs> marriage based on things we've said. It would be great to hear that stuff. I really hope that's not true. Also, did any of you start a podcast because of hearing this podcast? And if you just generally have an obituary for the show, you know, an epitaph. Wow. <laughs> Wow. A eulogy, if you will. Tell us how you would like the show to be remembered, how we will be remembered in your hearts. We'd love to hear all of that, preferably in your own voices. It'd be nice to get as many of your voices onto the show as possible. Yeah. You know the contact details by now. They've all been committed to song in your brain forever. It's too late now if you don't know them. <laughs> uh, did you meet anyone via Answer Me This? Make make some friends united by podcast. Mm. What's the weirdest place you listen to Answer Me This? Or the weirdest thing you were doing while listening to Answer Me This? We want to know it all! We would like to still answer questions as well. So if you are sitting on a doozy, please do send it in. And the deadline is the end of July. Yeah. After the end of July, we cannot promise that email address is going to be properly monitored anymore. So this is it. Yeah. End of July. Send it now. I mean, part of the point is for us not to monitor the email address anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and if you must take to Twitter, you might as well use the hashtag AMT400 now so that people can mm. work out what is going on eventually. Yeah, pregame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're hoping that uh, episode 400, when it comes out on August the 5th, will be a celebratory, life-affirming uh, moment. You want the feeling of, like, you stage dive and you're born aloft by a crowd of affectionate people and uh, you do a kind of victory lap around a stadium and then you're delivered safely back to the stage. Not that they put the crowd parts like the Red Sea and you... Just fall crack, six feet and dislocate your shoulder again. Crack your coccyx. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to get on with the show now, but if you're feeling emotional at the moment, thank you. Thank you for caring. Yes. And if not... Here's a question about Noel's house party. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Sean in Glasgow. Shit, I just dropped my phone. Uh, I've been thinking about a way back. I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, Noel's house party uh, with my wee gran and granddad. And there used to be this point when... Uh, it was like people used to be in the living room and get a surprise because they'd appear on TV. I think it was called like NTV or something like that. Uh, and I was just like thinking about it, just it popped into my head. And I thought, how did they do that? Like, I mean, I mean, I get doing it now because like cameras can be tiny. But like, how did they manage to do that in like what I think was like the 80s and 90s where like TV cameras were huge. You didn't have like digital broadcasting over internet and stuff. How did they do that? How could people have ever not noticed a camera in the living room? Thank you very much. Love you. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Um, <laughs> so for those who don't remember, um, NTV, indeed, Sean, was the name of the feature on Noel's house party when Noel Edmonds used to look down the barrel of the lens and click his fingers in a kind of the star of the show could be you moment. Mm. And they would go live to a viewer's living room. They were always watching Noel's house party by happy coincidence. Of course. All of Britain was. Yeah, a surprisingly huge amount of Britain was, so that's maybe not so extraordinary. There was a point, Helen, when a quarter of the country were watching Noel's house party on a Saturday night. Wow. Essentially, everyone watching telly was watching that. Shit. And it, it was quite a visually compelling idea, which you can still see in Antidex Saturday Night Takeaway as the obvious uh, influence, but, I mean, Gogglebox as well, the aesthetics of that. Mm. Yeah, the compelling idea was, here are real people like you in their sitting room. You know, they might be scratching their ass, they might be eating something off a plate that doesn't look particularly appetising, and suddenly, bang, they're on telly in their tracksuit. And the way they did it, Sean, uh, I mean, Sean says, oh, they didn't have small cameras in the 90s, but they did. It's just that the technology okay. isn't as good as it is now. So, yeah, I mean, it's true that now you can get a GoPro or a smartphone that's got a lens in it that's so tiny you really could hide it anywhere and anyone could do that. 
But in the 90s, if you were the BBC with money, no object for this hit show, then you could do that too. You'll have heard of lipstick cameras. They were around from that era, and that's how they used to film Formula One back then. Oh, wow. You know, that footage where you'd see a car-mounted camera, that existed from the 90s. Panasonic Mm. made them. They were hugely expensive. They're about the size of a paperback. And that is what they used to film Noel's House Party's NTV section. Ah! Did they disguise it as a book? You're on the right track. They disguised it as a VHS tape. Ah! (laughs) Was it a VHS tape of Noel's House Party? Because that would be very meta. Well, no, because that would have aroused suspicion, wouldn't it? Unless you're an absolute (laughs) super fan. What they do is they send the production team down to the sitting room that was going to be pranked. Someone would have been nominated in any case by their friend or partner who would be in on it. So um, there would be a mole on the inside. Yeah, and they'd make sure that the victim had gone out for the afternoon. And then when the production team turned up, they'd take a lot of Polaroids, because this was the 90s, mm-hmm. of what the sitting room looked like. And almost everyone back in those days would have a VHS machine under or on top of the TV, so i.e. within the eye line of the TV, so it would look like Noel was talking to them. Mm-hmm. And then on top of the VHS player, they'd have a couple of unboxed VHSs lying around. That's just what <laughs> everyone had. So they would replace one of the VHSs. They'd take the label off or make a repro label of one of the VHSs and put their dummy VHS tape on, and it was out of the record tab on the side that the lens used to poke out. Oh. Wow. Quite clever. That's a nice uh, trick, yeah. clever. And then there was always a second camera. That was obviously harder to hide. It would have to go in a plant pot or whatever, because you'd, you'd always get a wide or a profile angle, because Noel would get them to do a dance routine or whatever, or get the neighbours to come around, you know. Mm. So they needed a second camera. That was harder, because you really didn't want to alert the suspicion of the person who was going to be pranked. You, and, and most of the time, you can tell they genuinely didn't know, because they're looking, you know, they really were like scratching their ass or picking their nose very often when it cut to them which was part of the fun and then it did involve sometimes paying neighbors to drill through their home to get the cables <gasps> into a transmission van somewhere but they like i say money no object how's that legal people were like yes for noel's house party fuck yes my street's gonna be on mtv yes <laughs> go for it there are a few people that just did not enjoy the prank people who just just did not play along i would understand but i think most people Fair. It's, it's hardwired into the british psyche isn't it that if you're being humiliated on national television you just do play along i would hate it so much and just want to hide <laughs> but it is somehow more conspicuous not to go along with it than it is to go along with it which is annoying it's it's manipulative yeah just do it if you hate it do it do it to like to an adequate level and no one will remember make a fuss you know everyone will remember whenever someone would call up the radio they would always have to tell them to turn their radio off in the background because you get the the sound feeding back. Feedback loop. Yeah, if the family were watching Noel's house party at home, wouldn't that then pick up? This is why it'll be a shame to say goodbye to this show, Helen, because uh, it's that kind of question you've just sort of instinctively tapped into a really fascinating nerdy area that I have researched. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I thought, you know what, that's too geeky, I won't mention it. And then you asked anyway. Yes. So I do know the answer to that. Oh, going to lie back and enjoy this. (laughs) To prevent feedback loops, the TV that the victim was watching on would be relaying a fake version of BBC (gasps) One that the engineers had retuned it to. (laughs) They would use this. Well, remember, everyone was watching analog telly back then, so it wasn't that you don't have the risk you have now of like, are they on Virgin? Are they on Sky? Are they watching through the internet? None of that. Are they going to channel hop? No, because they would have to get up and change it on the telly set. They did have remote controls in the 90s. I didn't. (laughs) the feed of Noel's house party would actually be a dummy feed that was being relayed by their household aerial. So the engineers would take (laughs) the real version of BBC One, the off-air feed, from the household aerial on their house, but... Uh, when the moment came to go to Noel, they'd be looking at the version that was the two-way with um, the satellite truck around the corner. 
So that's how they eliminated any possibility of that. But back in those days, there was not much of a delay anyway. Like it was it was half a second or something. It wasn't like seven seconds. But to, to minimise that kind of feedback issue, yes. Fake version of BBC One. There you go. Incredible. Here's a question from Paul, who says, My niece has had a child and named him Kaiser. Okay. Kaiser William. An interesting choice. So, Helen, answer me this. Why has Kaiser become a popular <laughs> name? I can't see into the minds of the several thousand people who have called a child Kaiser in the last few years, because uh, since about 2017, uh, it has been in the top 1,000 names for boys has in it? the US. Uh, 2018, it was uh, 1,013th out of 6,164 names for boys in England and Wales. It's sort of hovering around the 800s in the US ever since then. And is there any other meaning? Because I I looked up in my little Oxford (laughs) Dictionary that I have on my desk and it says, Kaiser, noun historical, emperor, especially of Germany or Austria. Is there any other connotation? I mean, that's really it. It was a German borrowing of the word Caesar which meant emperor, and then the etymology of Caesar is pretty fuzzy. There's sort of speculation, oh, did it mean head of hair because Caesar was born with a good head of hair, blah, blah, blah. Or does it mean blue-eyed because Caesar was born with blue eyes? But basically it is emperor. And I do think there have been a bit of a rise in kind of grandstanding, royal-sounding names, like the name Rain, R-E-I-G-N. Is that a name? Yes, a name one of One Direction called his child that. Did he? Or middle name that. But... If your child's middle name was going to be William and you called them Kaiser, that is a bold choice, given that probably, you know, the the most associated name with Kaiser in a lot of people's imaginations would be William or Wilhelm after the last emperor of Germany. Mm. But uh, there might just be aesthetic reasons for it. The shortening is Kai, which is quite a popular name. Yeah, Kai, but Kai exists as, an, as its own name anyway. That's not short for Kaiser always, is it? No, it isn't. But I suppose if you wanted to give them a name that is longer than Kai that you would generally call them Kai, mm. but sounded kind of official, because <laughs> it is, then you might go for it. But also two-syllable names ending in ER have been popular. So I think a lot of times you get aesthetic patterns. So for a few years, like quite soft names like Eleanor, Lily, Olivia were popular. You've got those L sounds and those vowel sounds. And evidently at the moment, there's these kind of hard consonant names ending in ER that are doing it for people instead. There was a very popular TV show called Teen Mum on MTV that uh, I imagine you haven't watched. And uh, one of the stars, Janelle Evans, named one of her children Kaiser and that popularised the name. Although who knows why she did it. I mean, I think I've said this before, but the rules that we held true to were if your child was lost in the park, would you feel embarrassed shouting it out? Mm. Could the person be the CEO of a company in the future? Or would it sound ridiculous? The emperor of a company, more like. (laughs) And could you, difficult to imagine this to your own children, but could you imagine a a romantic partner in the future being amorously uh, turned on by that name? You know, could you say it during sex without it being ridiculous? Uh, Those those are valid rules, I think. Yeah, those are good rules. Uh, That's thoughtful. Kaiser is uh, the name of a a bread roll. Maybe people are very into (laughs) that and they find it sexy and powerful. Turn me on. What does your name mean, Martin? Is it something warlike? Martin is like from Mars. Yeah, it's like Mark. God of War. God of War. Which doesn't yeah. seem like your nature either. Highly so. inappropriate. Not really. Yeah, I don't know why you call someone that if you wanted it to say something about them unless you wanted them to be like a soldier or something. Well, this is it. It's one thing to call your child Martin even knowing that it means somehow anciently God of War. Mm. The equivalent with Kaiser is to literally call your child God of War. <laughs> That's why it's weird. You know, it's the language that people use now to mean Kaiser. They use the word Kaiser. That's why it's odd. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to look it up. Yeah. 
you know, it's only a few steps down from Führer, basically, isn't it? You just wouldn't. <laughs> uh, a few years ago on The Illusionist, I did a mini-series about names, and I got an email from someone called Adolf right. from South Africa, and he was like, it was all right growing up with it because Adolf Hitler kind of played differently here. <laughs> yeah, I-, I can see that, but still... Still, still a name about which you'd have an opinion. I think that's the thing you don't really it's want. Hard not to that much character forming going on with your children. Exactly. Mm. I did. I did meet someone whose surname was Adolf, and they were a genealogist, so they had lots of complex feelings about it. Mm. You know, I think they wanted to reclaim it to an extent. Isn't it like a big kind of medical insurance company in the state? Oh yeah, it is. Oh well, that's all right then. <laughs> that's I wanted to call my child Prudential. Prue. We've got three kids. We've got Sun Life, Prudential, and uh, Churchill. How do you think you would feel if, when your children are older, they were like, I don't like my name? Oh, I think I'd be okay with that. I found it weirder when, when my dad turned around to me and told me he didn't like me calling him dad. Because <gasps> there's one day he just suddenly said, from now on, I want you to call me Stan. I mean, he's having a midlife crisis, obviously. From now on, I want you to call me Stanley. How old were you? About 15. I just couldn't do it. 15? Yeah. Wow. So he would have been 50. Yeah. And he was just like, mm-hmm. it, he didn't like the idea of a teenager calling him dad, I think. It was making him feel old. I mean, it's just like, your dad, you've always been dad. Like, you don't really get to choose that, I don't think. Well, you choose it before the child's born. <laughs> yeah. Somehow it should be the children's prerogative what they call their own parents. Whereas, you know, you feel like when it's the parents choosing for the children, they get to choose for the first 10 years of their life. And if the child hates it, then that actually then becomes the child's prerogative again. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of power, isn't it? Choosing your child's name. Whereas when you're a child, choosing what you call your parent is like... One of the few powers you have. Power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Powering up. <laughs> I'm putting dad on your gravestone. There's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) If you've got a question, then email your question. If you've got a question, then email your question. Answer me this podcast at Here's a question from Joe in Seattle who says, Helen, answer me this. If I fell into a ball pit the size of a swimming pool, would I die? Mm. Ha. Huh. Well, I assume that Joe is phrasing this to imply that it's a very big and deep ball pit rather than just a, a small backyard swimming pool. Yes, but air pockets still apply, don't they? I mean, that's the aerodynamics right. of ball pits. Yes, exactly. You could still breathe even in a deep one. I mean, I've I've lied at the bottom of a small ball pit and I haven't died. That's good news. Did you have to be rescued, though, by a lifeguard? <laughs> it's part of the fun. I mean, I remember as a kid in a swimming pool holding your breath under to see how long you could last. Mm. Horrific, thinking about it yeah. as a parent. But, you know, in the ball pit, I think that's pretty safe, isn't it? Like, the, there are gaps. Yeah, although I can imagine that if you're in a very deep ball pit where the balls came up to the top of your head or or more, getting out of it would be really challenging. Yes. So it's possible you could starve to death. <laughs> well, that's a long, that's a longer term proposition than asphyxiation. That's several weeks, right? I've not actually ever been in a ball pit. What? Well, because oh. I I was a bit too old for soft play. Soft play came in after I was a, a teenager. We just had hard play that would injure you before. And as an adult, I've not been to one of these like adult Instagram experience ball pit things. I've been in a ball pit. Yeah. When? When I was a kid. I'm 43. I mean, you weren't, you're not too old for soft play, Helen. Yeah. You're, you're right that it wasn't as common as it is now. Yeah. That's just your parents told you that soft play didn't exist for five years. Play didn't exist. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how deep they tend to be. I sort of associate them with being maybe like waist height on children. 
Yes, although, I mean, you know, I now have a not-yet-two-year-old. His waist is low to the ground. He's never been in a ball pit, come to think of it, because of COVID. But when he gets in it, he's going to love it. Um, and he, standing up in the big ball pit at the local leisure centre around the corner from us, would be up to his face. So yeah. I don't think asphyxiation is an issue, because otherwise they wouldn't let you do that, would they? Yeah. And there are other ways that you can um, hurt yourself in a ball pit. I think apparently the main way is just people colliding with you. Mm. Like, if you're hiding under the balls. Yes say or if someone if the, if there's a slide going into the ball pit i think a kid if, did die here's someone who's never been to a ball pit if there's a slide going into the ball of course there's a slide going into the ball pit <laughs> helen like we, we're talking about joy here if you're ball pitting around at the bottom of the slide and someone comes down the slide yeah. that is a, a collision hotspot uh, that has been fatal but that's about slides not ball pits isn't it like hanging around at the bottom of a slide is fatal anyway i mean there's a lot of urban myths about Oh, my child died because there was a rattlesnake in the ball pit. Ooh. Or my child died because there was a heroin needle in the ball pit. And, and these stories seem quite widely circulated, but not verified in the ways attributed to a newspaper that doesn't exist. Sounds like moral panics, doesn't it? Right, exactly. Which is interesting because ball pits uh, were designed as part of the kind of soft play revolution, which existed because people thought outdoor playgrounds were unsafe. So they were created to be a safer playing environment. So it's interesting that they sparked people's paranoia that they're unsafe. I think it doesn't necessarily matter what the safety level is of a thing. People have natural fears and they'll channel them into whatever's available. Yes. And you can always be like, oh, there's probably been a heroin addict around here. Oh, a rattlesnake. In comparison to the fear of uh, abduction, which was basically what in the late 70s people were worried about in playgrounds. Yeah. It's an unlikely thing to happen, isn't it? Like landing on a heroin needle inside a children's play attraction. (laughs) Yes, I would have thought. And then that killing you. Yeah. This report I read, which was supposedly first person from a mother. She's like, my child died of a heroin overdose because a bit of needle had snapped off in his foot. I'm not sure that would make you overdose on heroin. Might might overdose on tetanus. but Yeah. So it does seem like the biggest hazard from a ball pit is filth. (laughs) (laughs) Because of, uh, you know, especially if it's a child ball pit Mm. there might be quite a lot of bodily excretions in there i wouldn't actually make that distinction i mean the adult ball pit is usually taken alongside alcohol isn't it so actually i'm not sure i'm not sure there's any likely to be less piss in an adult ball pit or less (laughs) less partially bathed up heineken yeah definitely vomit maybe a little bit of diarrhea yeah and manufacturers do recommend cleaning the balls once a week however do they no although borley borlison the uh, ball pit bars in London, which have been around for the last five or so years, they say, we have a ball cleaner called Gobble Muffin, which is kind of a machine with a big pipe, who sanitises and cleans 18,000 balls per hour. That is a lot of balls. Our balls get a lovely clean each and every week, and we've got the test results to prove it. And I've also heard of people putting all the balls in a net and taking them through a car wash or an industrial dishwasher. Do you know where the first soft play was in the world, Helen? I have seen it attributed to a play park in Ontario. Correct. The Children's Village, yes, in Ontario Place, Toronto, which was uh, created by an Englishman, actually, who moved to Canada called Eric McMillan. Mm-hmm. But it didn't have a ball pit in it. So he essentially invented what we know as soft play by creating that attraction architecturally. Yeah. But it didn't have a, a ball pit in it. His first ball pit, because uh, he did invent the ball pit, uh, in as much as you can invent diving into some plastic balls, um, was, was at Captain Kids World in SeaWorld, San Diego, uh, which opened oh. in 1976. Okay, have I told my anecdote on the show about being abandoned in SeaWorld? Uh, I don't remember. I remember you talking about crying to see the whales dance. 
Yeah, I'm not sure whether I have. Is this the story about you actually a child of a killer whale and uh, the man's picked you up, found you in a floating crib? Forgive me if you've listened to our archive more recently than we have, but none of us can remember if I've told this story before. <laughs> but when I was about seven, I got lost in SeaWorld, and it was because I went into Captain Kid's World. I went into the ball pit, and I was so amazed by the soft play. I'd never seen one before. Um, and, mm. and I just had a, um, a watch for my birthday. You know, I was dyspraxic and clumsy and, like, a, a terrible child for any kind of practical task. But Aww. nonetheless, my parents were trying to train me in it. So they were like, right, we're going to go for a cup of coffee over there, Oliver. Look at your watch. When the big hand gets to three, come and find us over there, right? Mm-hmm. And they left me in the ball pit. And I was diligent. I did keep checking my watch because I was a responsible-minded child. But I had absolutely no way of working out where they'd gone. Like, I just had no sense of direction. So I could not find Aww. where they'd gone. And I wasn't really paying attention because I was so excited to get into Captain Kid's world. So three o'clock came and I was like, oh, shit, I don't know where this coffee shop is. Walked around for like five or ten minutes <laughs> trying to find it. And it's a big disorientating place. You know, music coming out of the bins. <laughs> uh, you know, smells diverting me everywhere. Candy floss. What in garbage. And then I just did what seemed like the obvious thing to do when you're eight years old. Which is I thought, well, what would I do? if I was separated from me at SeaWorld, I'd go and watch Baby Shamu again. So (laughs) I went went like to the side doors of all of the shows and tried to spot my parents, which is impossible anyway, in a crowd of like 10,000 people. Um, And of course they weren't there. They were like shedding buckets of tears with the customer service department trying to get their child back from abduction. But uh, a Tannoy announcement went out, which obviously I was oblivious to. And I was just walking around for about an hour and then one of the SeaWorld staff spotted me crying <laughs> and said, have you been separated from your mummy and daddy? And I said, yes. And she said, come with me. And there they were. And uh, then we left. There was, there was no oh. more fun after that. <laughs> oh, no. What an emotional journey from peak to trough so fast. Yeah, so uh, Captain Kid's World was nothing but trouble for me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sure that that's not what Eric McMillan intended. No. I read him talking about how when he was a child growing up in um, post-war Manchester, I believe, and the kids would just play out on the rubble. Mm. They would just be turned out to play outside for the whole day. And he was like, and the kids would just dismantle a wrecked building. They would just like rip it apart brick by brick. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. So he really went uh, to the opposite side of the uh, softness spectrum. Yes, but still with the same tactility. Isn't that interesting? Like, True. You know, th- mm. And that's, I think, what's behind some of the revival as the world's become more digital in adults doing soft play. Is I think um, it's partly nostalgia, obviously, and it's partly Instagram. I get that, but it's also just the fact that it's something tactile rather than looking at a screen. Like it's holding a thing, jumping in a thing, feeling a thing. But I do think Instagram also has a lot to do with yeah, it yeah. because often the ball pits are like all yellow or all glow in the dark. Oh, that's fun. It does sound fun. Do you know what inspired Eric McMillan to come up with specifically the ball pit, though? A pit full of balls. Well, now you've said it's like a Blitz reference. I'm a bit concerned. There's <laughs> like undetonated no, no. bomb. That's, that's what made him. But it was a container of pickled onions. Oh. And he was looking at it going, wow, what would it be like to crawl through this? And then thought... <laughs> Imagine diving into a bath of onions. Yeah. Oh, visionary. So... It would have been amazing if the prototype ball pit had been filled with 40,000 onions rather than balls. The onion pit. Oh, I'd be kind of into that. I'm trying to build a website to bring tourists to Radlit. But when I open it up on my smartphone or tablet, something goes wrong and it just looks a bit shit. 
it's unlike Hertfordshire itself. While try building that website using Squarespace on desktop and devices, it will look simply ace. As well designed as Hertfordshire with all that lovely green space. County of Opportunity and Stevenage. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And providing you with an opportunity to build yourself a website as easily as you might, I don't know, flip a pancake if you're an American or um, order a sausage if you're a Brit. Brits flip pancakes? Not as readily, I don't think. It's not such a widely available thing. Just once a year on pancake day. Exactly, yeah. Um, less practice, isn't it? It is tricky. Yeah. I'd say actually setting up a Squarespace website is a bit easier than flipping a pancake because there's always at least the first pancake that gets absolutely trashed by that. Whereas Squarespace, not an option to trash. Well, the other thing that's great about Squarespace is they provide you a lot of data as well. So if you have a website, mm. like I have a personal portfolio thing, ollieman.com, I looked there the other day at like, you know, who's referred to my website and how many hits I get on certain days. It's really interesting, really granular. Like I can see that most of my visitors are on mobile, for example. So that then impacts how mm. you might design your website. Or I can see that most people come to my website from searching for me on Google, not from me reading out the URL on a podcast or whatever. So that makes you think as well about it. But that does make a lot of sense that people would be like, well, I can't remember the URL, but I remember I wanted to look it up. So going with the Google option. Yeah, but like it does change the way you think about web design and they help you with all that. So like, also another thing is the average visitor to my website apparently spends an average of one minute and 14 seconds looking at my pages. <laughs> so that's quite... Interesting. Like you then think, okay, well, what, there's no point me putting a clip up that's an hour long. There's no point me putting up more than two paragraphs because people on average aren't going to read it. I like, really think about that. Why don't you put up a, a tab with a gallery of all the glamour shots of you? I'm a bit frightened to see whether that would get traction. Anyway, <laughs> you can go and play around with the two-week free trial that we are offering you just for listening to this show. Head to squarespace.com answer. And then when you're ready to launch, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code answer here's a question from jay who says when i was a child i read all of the famous five books first in spanish then in english los cinco famosos i even bought the whole collection at a jumble sale uh, in england one summer when i was there learning english Mm -hmm. when he says the whole collection i doubt it i mean there are like 85 books of the famous five are there that's a literal car boot full of books isn't it yeah it's quite interesting because blighton originally conceived you know a bit like harry potter uh, I think there are six or seven famous five books based on the idea that it's set in the summer holidays rather than in a school year. But the point being the mm. same, mm. every summer as these kids grow up, they have an adventure. So it starts when they're 12 or whatever, and it would end when they're 18 because then they're not children anymore. Except the books were so popular <laughs> that she then wrote like another 50. And so wow. actually chronologically, I mean, of course, none of the events in the book are really possible anyway. But uh, it couldn't have all happened when she said it did, because that would be an entire summer holiday packed full of adventure with no time for term time. They're like they were permanently 14, basically. Uh, well, Poirot as well, Agatha Christie wrote those, over, I think, from the 20s to the 70s. Mm. And some of them do reflect current events like uh, be war or post-war. But uh, in the ITV adaptations, it's always the 1930s. Yeah, it's like The Simpsons, isn't it? It goes back to square one at the end of the episode. I mean, that's how to write. If you're going to write a book that you think has more mileage than like one sequel... Just don't be too specific about how much time has passed. That's my advice. Just have no character development or plot arc. <laughs> yeah. Who needs it? Maybe she's uh, managed to split timeline. So she's like, well, in one version of their 14th year, this is what they were doing. Oh. And in a parallel universe, this is what they were doing. The quantum mechanical reading of the famous five. <laughs> well, Jay's question is not about the quantum mechanical reading of the famous five. Oh. Jay's question is, Ollie, answer me this. What is the deal with ginger beer? 
It was very funny <laughs> to read, also in the translations, that those young kids, mature for their age as they were, were drinking something with the word beer in its name. What kind of drink was that? <laughs> ginger beer still exists, Jay. It does. I drink quite a lot of ginger beer. You are a ginger beer drinker, aren't you? Yeah. In fact, I remember being in a shop in Peckham and, I, and there was a guy looking at, who's looking at a ginger beer and I was like, that's a good, that's a good one. And he was like, oh, I can't, I can't drink it because I'm, I don't drink alcohol. And I was like, no, it's, it's, it says beer, but it's not got alcohol in it. And he looked at me like I was fu- fucking with him. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 it's, it, it's, and it's hard to explain. Are there, are there, Cause there's, I guess there's root beer. Which is another non-beer beer, but apart from that, like most beer is alcoholic, right? But some of them are, are fermented from a yeast, aren't they? Because my brother Rick tried to uh, brew some ginger beer and uh, during the fermentation it exploded. Yeah, so ginger ale, although this doesn't really help in the mm-hmm. sense that ale is typically no, an alcoholic exactly. drink as well. <laughs> but ginger ale is just carbonated ginger, it's just a soft drink. Ginger beer, although also a soft drink and not alcoholic, has been fermented with yeast. That's why it's called ginger beer. Mm-hmm. And to complicate things slightly further, there is a tradition that kind of goes in and out of fashion and was recently revived by Krabby's, the brand, of having alcoholic ginger beer. But then that would be labelled alcoholic ginger beer because usual ginger beer isn't. Yeah, it would be mm. sold on a different shelf realistically as well, wouldn't it? So mm. what the famous five are drinking is basically a sparkling ginger drink. And the reason that that was of such appeal to kind of eight-year-olds in the post-war generation was it was uh, an aspirational thing to drink, like in the summer holidays. All of Enid Blyton, she's so clever, isn't she, like tapping into a fantasy for a child of like a freewheeling life where you get to go on adventures and have fun and whatever. An Aryan freewheeling life. (laughs) And there's so much lingering detail on the picnic very often. Yes, Midnight feast and picnic, very important. Yes, and it's because, I think, that's the, like, it's hard for a child mm. to imagine I'm going to go rampaging around a lighthouse and capture a hostage, <laughs> but it's it's probably easier for them to imagine. Imagine we snuck out at midnight. We're still in an era where there's rationing. Yeah, she wrote the first right. one in 1941. Wow, so full-on war. Yeah, so it's, you know, ginger beer is a thing you can make at home, or people did then. Um, so it's something that actually you could you could have a day to yourself as a child say let's go to the woods and drink ginger beer that's the thing you could do and pretend you were the famous five I think that's it really but you see the same thing in Harry Potter like um, there's a very good Harry Potter podcast called Witch Please that has a whole episode about um, food in Harry Potter and about how like the feasts are really I mean they're magic but they're also kind of sumptuous and that comes from like J.K. Rowling essentially aping Enid Blyton yeah. That sort of sense of plenty, you can eat, eat as much as you want, you can have as much ginger beer as you want. Well, it's butter beer in Harry Potter, isn't it? Which they've yeah. now replicated at the theme yes, parks. Did you have true. it? I have had it, yes. So basically cream soda with colouring it in it. It is exactly cream soda. I wouldn't even use the basically. It is cream soda with colouring in it, yeah. No, thanks. It's fine, like in situ. Um, I mean, I've had it twice. So I've had it once at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando, and it was delicious because the temperature was like roasting and I was dripping with sweat and it was incredibly refreshing. Then I had it at the Harry Potter backstage tour down the road from where I live in St. Albans. <laughs> and, oh, oh. Um, there, just not necessary. Like, you know, I would have been fine with a cup of tea because we were in Britain. So I think context is not important. themed, but, though. But yes, it'd be very nicely themed. So ginger beer was popular uh, in Britain because it was sort of a product of the empire, really, in that it came from ah. uh, a mixture of like the spice trade with the Orient and the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. So it was considered mm-hmm. quite an exotic drink to the Victorians. And so it became like a trendy drink to have. And, you know, all those years later, it was still a choice that was redolent of English society, having ginger beer. Jay is expressing shock at the notion of children drinking something that even has a word in common with alcohol. But British children were drinking alcohol. (laughs) Maybe not as much at this point, but 19th century, I think we've talked about this on the show before, like in David Copperfield, 
they'll drink gin, they'll drink beer yeah. because the water was not clean, so they put alcohol in it. Had feces in it. Yes, yeah. Mm, all sorts. That's right. And actually, although ginger beer does recur frequently, and it's right to point that out, and that's why parodists did, it actually, the phrase lashings of ginger beer, that's one of the first things, if you Google Enid Blyton, people say, oh, lashings of ginger beer, virtually every broadsheet article about Enid Blyton's history and her questionable views and everything, lashings of ginger beer will be in the headline. But mm-hmm. actually, lashings of ginger beer, she never wrote in any of <gasps> her books. She did mention Whoa. lashings of something else. And ginger beer came up frequently, but that was actually a parody. That was the comic strip thing, Five Go Mad in Dorset in the 80s. That came from that. Like, it's not a thing she actually said. My ah. goodness. So I think that helped sort of solidify the uh, ginger beer trope as something people say that Enid you know, Blyton lingered on. But actually, I don't think she did any more than Scotch eggs, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Lashings of eggs. <laughs> Paradise for you, isn't it, Martin? Lashings of eggs. Well, I've been reading a lot of Enid Blyton, actually, to Harvey because he likes it. It's interesting that the... The row that there's been recently about, um, I don't know if you saw, but English Heritage added some footnotes to Enid Blyton's page to cover her racism and xenophobia. Yes. Um, which I think is absolutely fair yeah. enough. And you do have to self-edit as you go along reading the story, looking out for <laughs> dodgy words yeah. and attitudes. I think as we have learned from the retro answer me this, basically any piece of culture from any point in the past, you yes, have to exactly. add footnotes. Even the beginning of this show, probably. But what I do take objection to in what English Heritage have written on their website is that they've mentioned these faults in her writing, but then they also say... Uh, you know, she was criticised during her lifetime and afterwards for her lack of literary merit. And I just think that is an unnecessary footnote to a plaque because, you know, yes, she was. But I mean, still now in 2021, I have proof that a five-year-old is enthralled by a lot of what she wrote. And it's because it's exactly at their level. It it doesn't resonate in the same way to an adult as when I read. Like I read Charlotte's Web to him recently and moving from the Magic Faraway tree to Charlotte's Web. It really is night and day. Like E.B. White's a proper writer, beautifully written, like, creates an incredible sense of the American countryside. He doesn't care about any of that shit. It's just like, has he got a slide in the tree? (laughs) (laughs) And Enid Blyton, like every page, something cool happens and he's just in it, you know? Mm. And I I wouldn't call that a lack of literary merit. It was the snobbery of the time. Female author, phenomenally popular, Mm. even measured against authors since. And so they have to be like, well, it's not good though, is it? It's not good. Kids like it and everyone's buying it. It's not good. It's because every genre apart from literary fiction is looked down upon in this country, isn't it? Yeah. Like whether it's like fantasy or science fiction or romance or crime, like those are all considered like, you know, generic and, and, and not worthy of merit. I don't agree with it, but I can see the logical argument that an adult might be wasting their intellectual time by reading true crime rather than poetry. Like I said, I don't agree with it, but I can see why someone might think that. But it's a snobby position, isn't it? But when your mission statement is to get children to read... Like anything, yes. just get them to read anything. I mean, it's just obviously if they like Enid Blyton, they should read Enid Blyton. But yeah, obviously the the new versions where they don't use racist words and they don't call everyone Dick and Fanny is preferable. I mean, actually, the other day I was reading one of the original books, which I got an antiques fair to Harvey, and it was a book of short stories. And he just thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world that there was a boy in the story called Willie. <laughs> I mean, to, it was like the most hilariously transgressive thing he'd ever encountered. And just, that was it. Like half an hour of laughter. Honestly, like after he'd gone to bed in the lights <laughs> route, I could still hear him laughing. Aww, <laughs> God bless. Have they renamed all of the characters called Fanny? Because that might like knock him over for weeks. Yeah. If he um, finds one of those. I can't remember what her name is. I think it might be Winnie. So anyway, in the, in the faraway tree, Dick is definitely Rick now. And I think Fanny is... Vulva. Yeah. (laughs) How many social networks are you on? The old friendster path you pawn. 
MySpace, Ping and Google Buzz. If you want to be our pal, go to this URL. Facebook.com slash answer me this. Or Twitter.com slash Helen and Dolly. But please don't follow us in real life. Thank you to our sponsors for this episode of Answer Me This, Wondrium, which is the new name, by the way, for The Great Courses Plus. So you've heard us talk before about The Great Courses Plus and all the programmes, experts and episodes you can find on there. Yes. They have all migrated over to Wondrium, but there's even more on there, Helen. That's right. They've got a load of videos uh, by Craftsy about loads of different crafts things. So I did watch uh, several episodes of... Uh, a thing instructing you how to sew big projects on small sewing machines. But I'm imagining that is not your flavour, Ollie. So I'll tell you about something else I watched. They have a really interesting collection of archived documentaries. Right. I started watching The Atomic Cafe, which is a 1982 non-narrated documentary. It's like a compilation of archive material, news, public information films, uh, propaganda, basically, about nuclear weapons. Oh, I'm already there. Some of it is quite funny, but it's also like, oh my fucking God. Because you've got these um, arrogant men of the 1940s and 50s going, brilliant science weapons, uh, intercut with like horrific footage of the aftermath of Hiroshima You've got them being like very glib about doing nuclear tests on Bikini Atoll and they're like, the people are very welcoming of us like nuking their island. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the guy saying, I'm not an atomic playboy and these tests won't make a hole in the ocean where all the water will come out and they won't destroy gravity. But they did destroy Bikini Atoll because they had to be relocated for 20 years and then they were allowed to move back and this, this, the land is poisoned, so they had to leave again. So just all these like American men being like, this is fucking brilliant, science weapon. Uh, it's just this pageantry of power. It's interesting as well just how recent it is, I always find, when it comes to nuclear history. Like, you know, the, the Thatcher yeah. government published that pamphlet, didn't they, in the 1980s about what to do in the event of a nuclear attack in Britain. I don't know, it's in our lifetime that people did think that might happen. The filmmakers were like, we did it now because nuclear weapons are not popular amongst the public. They're very sick of war. Yet Ronald Reagan is amping up uh, the nuclear campaign. And so I think what the film is intending to do is to be like, well, look, this is what they were saying about it. This was officially released stuff. And this is the reality And here's how this sort of propaganda worked. Yeah, I love a bit of archive. Love it. All right, well, to check out uh, those exclusive documentaries, uh, including Wondream Originals and collections from Craftsy, like Helen mentioned, uh, you can get a 14-day free trial of unlimited access to Wondream if you sign up now via our special URL, wondrium.com slash answer. That is W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash answer for a two-week free trial. Well, talking of learning new things, Rachel from Carmarthen says, I have decided to take up knitting. Mm. I've watched loads of instructional videos, but so far the only thing I've achieved is the urge to stab my husband every time he asks me how I'm doing. (laughs) So Helen, answer me this. How do I get started with knitting or get away with murder? (laughs) I did read a Ruth Rendell short story about this uh, woman who um, she was very big into knitting Her husband became increasingly frustrated by the noise and basically by something making her happy. So she um, inserted a very thin needle into uh, the side of his skull so that he died from like a brain hemorrhage. Anyway, I should say, Rachel, there is actually a 36-part course on knitting on Wondering. (gasps) Wow, 36. But Helen, give us your Knitting 101. Well, it's difficult for me because I learned when I was really, really young 
Uh, I learned when I was like four or five from my grandmother. And I think it's a lot easier when someone does show you, even though most of the visuals might be the same as a video, you can see the three-dimensional thing of what your hands are supposed to be doing. Mm. Because really knitting, there's like two things you have to pick up, how to make a knit stitch and how to do a purl stitch. And then the rest is combining them. So I would suggest if you have a grandma handy, I'm afraid I can't lend you mine because they're both dead, or even a local craft group, they might be having... IRL knit sessions now or someone who will give you a tutorial online for like an hour I think you could get it because then they could be like oh this is what you're doing wrong uh get into some of the knitting groups on Facebook and uh I think that'll be good and then start on small items like knit a bunch of different squares you can sew them together later into a blanket or scarf or something but then you learn tension and different stitches don't use needles that are too small or yarn because that'll make it hard for yourself. And then I would suggest to make some toys. That's how I got back into knitting as Nada. I was uh, watching 24 on box set and knitting dinosaurs. Mm. So you learn how to like shape things and then you have an item quite quickly. So you think, oh, I did that. That's cool. Whereas if you want to start on a jumper, that's going to take you months. Yes. Probably. So start simple and uh, work your way up to a garment. It's interesting when you say keep things simple as well. Because, uh, I, as you know, do not have a lot of experience with crafts, generally. Not my thing. Um, hand-eye coordination, not my thing. Aesthetic uh, appreciation of anything, not my thing. But um, I was at Centre Parks the other week, and they have the sort of pottery painting studio thing. And mm. I wanted to make myself a salt cellar, are they called? Like, you know, when you have a little pot with flakes of salt in it, one of those. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is paint it. And I wanted it to match my kitchen, which is themed blue and yellow. So the tiles are blue and yellow, the chairs are blue and yellow, the picture frames are blue and yellow. So I thought, well, if I paint it blue and yellow, that'll match. It doesn't matter how bad it is. What if you can't find it in there? (laughs) There are other colours. There's just a blue and yellow matching scheme. Anyway, I painted it blue and yellow and I should have stopped. I should have fucking stopped. Mm. But, you know, you look at it and you think, yeah, but it's just not that impressive is it that i did that all i've done is paint it blue and yellow i know i'll make the knob black and that fucked it because i just put too many and then the colors bled through and actually Mm. if it just been blue and yellow it would have looked really nice so keep it simple right i mean good for you for having ambition ollie how are you gonna learn if you don't try it and risk failure Mm. at least knitting you can undo it whereas the pottery painting you could smash it i've got it though i mean it's imperfections actually remind me that i made it i suppose that's its strength do you feel proud or just annoyed and disappointed it's a memory rather than any sense of satisfaction. It's more just like, oh, yeah, I remember I went on holiday and did that. So I suppose it, you know, it has a purpose. Yeah, I think that's also a lot of the purpose of craft. It's uh, not just to have the thing because realistically you can buy a jumper much more quickly and cheaply. <laughs> yeah. But you have the experience of making it. And once you get it, knitting, it's very relaxing. Pottery painting for other people might be relaxing, but for you it's stressful because you're thinking about the consequences of living with the decisions you make in the moment. Yeah, I just want a good salt cellar. Uh, that's why there are professionals, <laughs> professional salt knob painters. <laughs> there are. Do you remember? Knobbers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the knobbers were very impressive. Helen and I went on a tour of the Emma Bridgewater factory in another lifetime and we met a load of knobbers. Yeah. Their job was <laughs> painting the knobs on teapot lids, but it was incredible because like, they did it in a split second. It was amazing. This is a process known as knobbing. <laughs> Amazing. Here's a question from D from Adelaide who says, Ollie, answer me this. Is it true that zoos give cheetahs pet dogs? And if so, why? Do the cheetahs ever end up attacking and eating the dogs? This seems like a disaster waiting to happen. It is true. Wow. Wow. <gasps> and it's Gosh. And it's habitual, by the way. It's not just like sort of one zoo that was looking for a publicity stunt or something. It is absolutely mm. normal behaviour, particularly in North America, to give the cheetahs pet dogs. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because uh, despite what Dee says, that it could be a disaster waiting to happen and the cheetahs might attack and eat the dogs, 
they have very specific needs for their prey. Hmm. Like they don't see um, adult-sized humans as prey, and hmm. essentially they they're shy sh- cheetahs. Like the, the reason that they're the fastest animals in the world is because they're built for flight, not fight. So the issue is when you put them in captivity, they can't run anywhere. So if they feel intimidated and scared, oh. they can't run. Right. So what having a dog by their side does is basically sort of ground them. It's very similar to what dogs do for human beings, essentially. Like, it grounds them, like, gives them someone to talk to, like, like share their feelings with. It makes them feel more relaxed and have less anxiety. But it has to be done at the stage to avoid the issue that he's referring to there. I mean, no cheetah on record has ever killed a, a dog that they've been buddied up with. But it has to be done wow. when the cheetah is a cub and the dog is a puppy. Okay. Yeah. That's right. amazing. What kind of dogs are there? They're like Daxies or like St. Bernard's, so they can kind of... They don't look like a, a tasty morsel? No. They're, I mean, like I say, because they're puppies and cubs next to each other. They just sort of learn. Oh, yeah. Cheetahs are slightly, I mean, this is a real generalization, but cheetahs, I mean, obviously they are cats, but they're a bit more like dogs than other cats. So, like, they have non-retractable claws, for example, like dogs. Um, so if huh. you bring up a cheetah and a puppy next to each other, they don't necessarily distinguish. I mean, it's hard to know what they think, isn't it? But they don't necessarily distinguish <laughs> each other. Have you asked a cheetah? <laughs> well, they're very private, as he said. As being any different from being from the same litter. So they are just emotional support for each other. So, no, it's like house dogs, like Labradors and stuff, retrievers. That's very cute. I had never heard that before. Yeah. Like, once you disappear down the cheetah hole, there's a lot on YouTube of it. Because, obviously, because it's cute. Oh, Like, you just wonder whether actually it just started because someone wanted a photo shoot of a cheetah (laughs) cub with a puppy puppy. for a terrible grandma calendar in a shopping mall. And then they were like, oh, they're actually (laughs) getting on. (laughs) Also, the other reason is conservation. Because they're more relaxed, they're more willing to procreate with other cheetahs. And obviously that's important for zoos that are committed to sustaining the life of the species. So that's another reason, Mm. um, is that they team them up with puppies and they're more likely to want to get off later. Of course, people are thinking, well, how do we make cheetahs less miserable in zoos rather than thinking... Don't put a cheetah in a zoo. Yeah. Yeah, should we? Well, some of that's conservation, isn't it? Some of it is like they're abandoned cubs or, you know, cubs that are injured and then can't, you know, fend for themselves in the wild. Some is, lots isn't. I mean, there's difference in like a wildlife refuge versus a zoo, which is more like a burlesque of animals. I think that's true. But also I think a lot of wildlife refuges will want to bring members of the public in to advertise their work and bring in revenue and awareness of cheetahs and stuff. I mean, zoos are always, you know, caught in this bind, aren't they? They do do valuable conservation work with the money they raise. They do bring an exhibition of exotic animals to people that never would have seen them otherwise. But there is a trade-off in the welfare standards. Since inner city zoos exist, I suppose the cheetahs might as well be as happy as possible. The world's moved on, and uh, I don't know. I feel like bits of the world have. I feel like a lot of people going into you know zoos now because they want to look after animals. Well, you say bits of the world have moved on. Yeah, I mean in the UAE, it is still I wouldn't say commonplace because you're talking about the ultra rich who are there, Mm. Um, but it is not unusual amongst the billionaires of the UAE to have a pet cheetah, um, which is something that was. Again, I wouldn't say common, <laughs> but more common in Western celebrities, Hollywood types, um, you know, about 80, 90 years ago. So uh, there was um, the silent film actress Phyllis Gordon was photographed walking her pet cheetah around Earl's Court. There's an amazing photo wow. of her going shopping with this thing on a, like a metal chain, walking it like a dog. I wonder if she also had a dog to keep the cheetah calm. Uh, she didn't seem that bothered about keeping the cheetah calm. She was walking down the street in central London. But yeah, uh, maybe. Um, Josephine Baker used to have one as well. She used to take it walking down the Champs Elysees. Wow! I do feel better about that than zoos, uh, than the sort of the old-fashioned zoos. It's funny because 
there was the slight chance that the cheetah might literally eat the rich at some point. <laughs> and that je- sense of jeopardy is quite exciting. No, that's again, you're playing into cheetah prejudice, Martin. I know you're making a point, but no, that's why they were good pets. Like they are actually... They never turn on the whip hand of the master. They right? are more suitable pets. Yeah, they don't really go for... They might go for children, but they wouldn't go for an adult. They just, they're too Well, scared. eating a rich child is also acceptable. <laughs> Five Star Hotel had an omelette station, a multitude of pools, but 30 quid for parking, WTF. Four Star Hotel. There's Ethernet, not Wi-Fi like it's 1998, but there was a swim-up bar in the rooftop pool. Three Star Hotel. A bit more down to earth. They did still have a pool, but it was full of kids. Two-star hotel. A lot more down to earth. They also had a pool, but it was full of dogs. One-star hotel. There's a body in the pool. Answer me this holiday. All the fun of travelling with none of the stinky toilets or frightening food. Out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Here's a question from Sebastian in Oxford who says, I live opposite a church, St Barnabas in Jericho, Oxford. I'm afraid the only church that I remember in that street is the one that had a bar in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've all got communion wine. (laughs) (laughs) Which chimes, he says, every quarter of an hour as well as whenever there's a service. Oh, it's the Catholic one. That's beautiful, that uh, church. Yes, it's got that... Right by the canal. It's got that, uh, like, Italian campanile. Yeah, that's a cute church. Uh, I normally find church bells quite pleasant, he says, but Mm. this church's chimes sound somehow out of tune. Mm. I don't know if this is simply a sonic illusion because some of the bells are missing, uh, and bells are definitely missing because some of the melodies have gaps in them, or whether it's because some of the bells have actually grown out of tune. Helen, answer me this. Can a bell go out of tune with time? And if so, can it be tuned back? Well, if uh, we're talking about bell-shaped bells, which in St Barnabas's case were not, bells can be retuned, but they can't be tuned back to the note they were. They'll cast the bell out of metal, and then it seems to be a very exacting process of like using a circular lathe to like carve thin layers off the bell until the note is right. What did you say? It can be tuned one way but not the other? Yes, you can get the note lower but not higher. Okay. But why can't you add to it? You would have to make a new bell, basically, whereas shaving off more layers is possible, but it's also difficult. Uh, also, bells get cracked and they'll mend the cracks and that might change the mm. tuning a bit as well. I did go quite uh, deep into um, various bell maintenance advice sites. Yeah. They've all got uh, serif fonts, so I think uh, they're all uh, pretty old websites. Yeah, but if I was a bell ringer, I'd be looking for that kind of common group identity. You know, I'd be pleased to hear the thoughts of fellow bell ringers from around the world. Oh, yeah. A lot of them were like, if your bell is doing this, leave it. Right. If this is falling apart, leave it. It's basically like if your bell's fucked, well, it's going to be fucked for another 200 years. So leave it. Sebastian says he doesn't like the sound of these bells, but I presume some people that live near that church would say that's the sound of the bell. Like, you know, a bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something. Like, it's, you know, we've all got used to that's how the bell sounds. It's quite evocative. Sometimes people probably would rather leave it slightly out of tune. Well, okay. In the case of St. Barnabas, it doesn't have those kinds of bells. What it has are 10 tubular bells and a Victorian mechanism for playing out a tune on them. However, the mechanism, from what I have been able to find, is, they say, erratic. 
which means it's fucked and they have not been able to mend it. Mm. So apparently it misses out quite a lot of the notes or plays them like in at the wrong time. So maybe that's it. Maybe it is that some notes are missing so the intervals become unpleasant without that context. I think it's also possible that if they have replaced a bell, they may have replaced a bell with slightly wrong note bell. That could mm. happen since it is so difficult to get the precise notes. I did see on their website they have an appeal to get a new organ in 2022 but i did not see anything about getting the bells repaired so either it's probably just too expensive or they're settled on this well, people like they're it like it. i say yeah they're used to it exactly sorry sebastian you're stuck with that every quarter hour of your life <laughs> <laughs> martin well done for getting through this episode in which we've had ball pits and bell ends <laughs> um my ex-girlfriend was a campanologist really yeah, I only saw her play once. Oh, you... I think it might have been on Christmas Day. No, that's that not really... the punchline. That you set that well, up like a Bob Monkhouse gag. <laughs> well, I'm just, I've got a real deep reverence for um, really you know, bell, bell, didn't you? bell ringers. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. This penultimate episode of Answer oh, Me This. So, remember what we said at the beginning. This is your last chance to ask us a question on the show, and we also want your reflections on the last 15 years and what this show has meant to you. Yes, your AMT memories. And uh, you can write them up and email us, or you can record your voice and email us that recording. And our contact details are on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And halfway through the month, we will have a retro episode of Answer Me This. The last ever retro episode of Answer Me This. Uh, you need to subscribe to our free feed to get it, though. Uh, apart from Google Podcasts, for reasons yeah, that are complex. Yeah, some reasons it's fucked um, yeah. <laughs> Subscribe somewhere else and you'll get that. Uh, and also you can check out our other podcasts. Ollie, what's cooking? Uh, yeah, The Retrospectors, my new daily show, which is all about the things you never knew you never knew. Uh, every day, a 10-minute trivia bomb will land on your pod feed. Uh, there are now over 50 episodes for you to enjoy. Uh, coming up next week, we have The Invention of the Bikini, which is related to Bikini Atoll that you mentioned earlier. Sure is. The world's first bread slicing machine and the final episode of El Dorado. The set of El Dorado is now used for paintballing. Hmm, that makes sense. Helen, what's going on in your world? Well, Veronica Mars Investigations, like Answer Me This, is uh, hurtling towards the end, although that is dictated by Veronica Mars, the TV series, uh, not making any more of itself. So that is at vmipod.com. And then on The Illusionist, the most recent episode is about uh, mental health terms, especially the ones that we sprinkle into everyday conversation. But what are we really saying when we say that? Hmm. Uh, so that's at theallusionist.org. And then the pod places. Yeah, Martin. Uh, I've just launched a new podcast called Neutrino Watch. Uh, it's at neutrino.watch. Uh, it's a sort of f- fiction podcast. And every single day the audio changes slightly. So it's a daily podcast, but not as you're used to. So do dip into that. And I also make a podcast called Song by Song, which is going through every Tom Waits song in chronological order. So if you're a Tom Waits fan or just like music, uh, head over to songbysongpodcast.com. Or if you're Tom Waits. Or if you're Tom Waits. And actually, how many songs of Tom Waits' catalogue do you have left on that? Uh, I can't remember how many we've got left. I think we're back to hit number th- episode 300, Jeez. which is good. You're lucky you didn't do Shakespeare's Sister or something. The podcast would have finished a long time ago. I think if we ever did it again, it would be like um, someone who died young. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All the bleakness. Or started really late. Or just doesn't put out many records. Enya. Yeah. Seal. Yeah. Sade. <laughs> He's like the Terence Malick of uh, popular music, I don't yeah. know. And uh, rejoin us on the first Thursday of August 2021 for the final episode. For historic final episode 400. Bye! Bye. Bye.